This is the, the Reasons to Believe chapter here. I just want to welcome you. My name is Bob Clapper. I'm the president uh, for the Reasons to Believe chapter, and we're glad to have um, Perry here today. And Perry Marshall is an author, speaker. He also works in the area of sales and in the area of software engineering. And um, one of the reasons book that he's put together is a book called Evolution 2.0. After how many years of research, Perry? 11 11 years of research, and he'll probably tell a little bit of his story there. Um, he also has appeared on Unbelievable. If any of you heard the broadcast out of the UK called Unbelievable, he uh, um, um, was on a debate with uh, PC Myers on this whole area of topic here. Now, Perry um, has a little different view than RTB holds, but we don't hold that against him at all. Uh, we welcome to have dialogue about different kinds of views and, and so that we can learn and grow from each other. So I'm going to let Perry come up and introduce anything else more about it. Thank you for coming, Perry. Bob, thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you all for coming today. Um, I'm really glad you're here. And um, today, I'm going to I'm going to take the puzzle. You know, if if you've ever had a, a a puzzle that you built inside the box, I'm going to take the box and flip it up in the air and let the pieces fall down in a different way than probably most of you have ever seen before. And I'm going to ask you to indulge me a little bit uh, and, and, and be a little gracious. And I really want to discuss this. I really want to take that puzzle apart and try to put it together a different way. I think that if you really hear what I'm saying, you're going to find that your apologetic is three times more powerful than it was before, and something that was working against you is now working in your favor, namely evolution. Evolution, I submit to you, is the best argument for God, not an argument against God, and Christians have taken the bait and swallowed a completely backwards perception, okay? I'm even going to challenge RTV model a little bit, and it's not out of any kind of animosity whatsoever. I love RTV, and in fact, my first slide is this, um, the story that I want to tell you today starts with, um, in fact, uh, why don't you turn on the lights, because I don't think I need, um, yeah, yeah, you're good. You're good. In fact, I think I'll even I'll get a little light happening here. No problem. Thank you. This starts with listening to Hugh Ross tape in 1994. Now, I remember one day at work, and this would be a couple years before this, I was at work, uh, working at my engineering job, and all of us engineers are in our little engineering area, and, and we're talking about religion. And this one guy named Ron goes, Aw, I don't even know if Jesus even existed. I go, yeah, right, Ron. Most influential person in all of Western civilization, or all of history for that matter, stepped into the world, split time in half, B.C., A.D., most loved, most hated, most argued about person, more ink spilled on this guy than anybody else. Um, yeah, right, he did exist. Sure. And somebody goes, he got you wrong. <laughs> well, then this other guy says, all right, you know, that's great and all, but he goes, if you're going to tell me that there was like this Garden of Eden and like the whole human race, you know, 
you know, because some snake talked to a woman with an apple and the earth is 6,000 years old. I'm sorry, I just don't really buy that. And I thought, I don't actually have a good answer for that. I didn't. I mean, I hadn't gone too far down that rabbit hole other than when I was, I remember when I was about 15, this guy named John Whitcomb, who I think was, is that Institute of Creation Research? Does that sound right? He came to our church and he gave this whole series of seminars and he explained everything, right? Except his explanation really had a lot of fraying edges and sooner or later you figure out like, well, Earth is not 6,000 years old. Well, and I, so this is a, like a big gaping hole and I knew sooner or later, like I'm gonna have to figure this out, right? Well, without even like having to, you know, get my knuckles bloody or take it on the chin much anywhere, I'm listening to Hugh Ross tape and he goes, Big Bang equals Jesus Christ. Let me explain why. And he explained, you know, George Lamatra, the Belgian guy that came up with the Big Bang and explained the fine tuning of the universe. And it was predicted first in Genesis, and he describes a biblical creation model. He talks about the fine-tuning of the Big Bang, the fine-tuning of the elements, the extreme improbability of this happening by accident. And it all is biblical. And I'm like, this is great. And like, I'm, I'm, I remember, I'm driving down I-88, listening to this tape, and like, my brain is on fire. This is awesome. Okay. So, you know, that was, that was a good start. And I love RTB. A few years ago, I went to some apologetic conference. I had a long conversation with Kathy Ross. Um, I sort of know Fuzz. I've met Hugh, you know, and, and, and like the first, the first time I ever gave my information theory talk to any audience was at a RTB meeting hosted by Bob. I think it was 2005. So, really love you guys. But I'm going to challenge you on a couple things today. Because I think there's this huge opportunity where evolution can actually be... You, let's put it this way. You can steal the chess queen of evolution away from the naturalists and the atheists, and it can be on your side instead. And you all know if you play chess, if the queen goes from the other guy to your side... There's this massive shift in power that happens. And now, um, today, so I'll tell you a little bit of my story. So, all right, Hugh Ross gets me to Big Bang. Big Bang equals Jesus Christ. I'm good with that. I like that. All right, but what about evolution? My brother went to China as a missionary after he graduated from graduating from Master's Seminary uh, in Southern California, John MacArthur's school. And I, I went to his graduation, and all these guys in blue suits and red ties stood there, and they charged him to, you know, preach the word in season and out of season, rebuke, correct, and like, you guys are going to go fix the world. Okay. So he goes off, and he ends up going to China to be an undercover missionary. And um, teach English on this, uh, and and um, well, the perfectly coiffed Excel spreadsheet of exact answers that he got from John MacArthur, we we got it all figured out. It started unraveling because he was not in a place where they could force him 
to, to think what they wanted him to think. And they could not prevent him from asking questions. They could not stop him from searching the internet. And that little, that perfectly coiffed Excel spreadsheet starts to unravel. Well, guess what? The earth is not 6,000 years old. So what else are they not telling you? And it just, I mean, it's like, it's like an avalanche, okay? Things start falling apart. Now, you just heard this video where Jeff Zwerink, who I also got a chance to meet not too long ago, <coughs> gave a great talk on uh, multiverses, actually. He, he says, you know, I read a blog post from a Christian ministry that says, don't send your kids to a secular university. Yeah, let's just bury our heads in the sand. Uh... It enrages me that anybody's given that advice. And what that tells you is that their science doesn't work. And they're trying to prevent what happened to my brother. And they can't prevent it without circling the wagons and trying to insulate people from the world. And that doesn't work. Brian asked really good questions. In fact, that's one of his true gifts. <clears throat> Brian will ask you questions that will irritate you because they're good questions. Okay? One of his great, he's the president of my company. We could go, flew to Chicago and start asking me a bunch of questions that I really didn't like. <laughs> <laughs> well, you need that. All right. So, Brian is like, throwing Christianity out the window and we're in this little bus in China and we're arguing. And this has already been going on for a couple years. And he keeps asking me questions. We're talking about infallibility and inspiration and genesis and prophecy and healing and like everything. And I just feel like I'm slipping, I'm slipping, I'm losing ground, I'm losing ground. And he keeps chipping away, he keeps chipping away. And I go, okay, Brian, Look at the hand at your, the end of your arm. I go, this is a fine piece of engineering. Never heard, had anybody disagree with that. This is a fine piece of engineering. <laughs> so you don't really think this is like the result of a bunch of random accidents, do you? And he's like, hang on, buddy. And he pushed right back. And he goes, hey, look, you know, you got like a million, billion falcons flying around. There's an occasional mutation, you know, copying error makes their eye better, then it's got better eyes, then it outlasts the other falcons, it gets better, it gets better, and gets better. Darwinian evolution, like, there you go. No designer needed. Now, I didn't agree with that. As an engineer, I felt like, boy, you got a lot of explaining to do. But I knew most biologists would agree with him and disagree with me. <clears throat> and I know they're not stupid, and I know there's a lot of things in science that are very counterintuitive because I have an electrical engineering degree and I know certain things like I would have never guessed in a million years until I went to college that imaginary numbers are a way of solving some really crazy problems and digital signal processing and stuff like just to get name one imaginary numbers. Yep. And they're very real. Okay. So like maybe they know something I don't know. And Brian, in that conversation on that bus, Brian pushed me over the edge. And, all, and I'm in free fall. And I don't know. And I might be wrong. And I said, I'm going to let science decide this for me. 
is, is the world really purposeless? Do you really just get all of this by billiard balls banging around in the universe? I don't know. But because in engineering, I know what it feels like to get to the bottom of something. I, so for example, I did a term paper in college where I had this very complex acoustics problem that most people don't even want to deal with. And I was interested in this problem. And I had to get to the bottom of it. I reduced the whole thing to force equals mass times acceleration and the wave equations. And I figured it all out. And I knew every last bit of why this thing worked. <clears throat> I know what that feels like. And I am going to get to the bottom of this in biology. And I'm going to find out, do billiard balls banging around the universe plus natural selection produce all of this? Or do you need some kind of engineering for things to happen? Going to find out. Now, another piece of this. Right along the same time, I put together two websites. One of them was called coffeehousetheology.com, and the other one was called cosmicfingerprints.com. <coughs> and what they were, so I make my living as an, a market, an online marketing consultant. I wrote this, I'm, I'm most famous for writing this book, Ultimate Guide to Google AdWords. This is the world's best-selling book on internet advertising which is a ferociously competitive area. Well, Google AdWords is the most important development in advertising in the last 50 years. Completely changed the way advertising is done. And for a number of years, nobody, most people really didn't understand it. Now everybody's on to it, and the bids are very expensive. You can pay up to $1,000 a click on Google AdWords. And, and companies like mesothelioma, um, Austin, Texas, driving while intoxicated, for example, are north of 100 bucks a click in real life. Okay? Well, back in the mid-2000s, clicks were really cheap, and especially on philosophical things like astronomy, things like theology, very cheap clicks. And I'm buying clicks for anywhere from one to five cents. And this project is my tax write-off and little experimental playground. And on both of these websites, I had these. So you'd click on an ad, and it would say, where did the universe come from? Did it come from God, or does science have a better explanation? I had this other thing called Seven Great Lies of Organized Religion. And I would get people on these email lists for anywhere from 15 to 50 cents a piece. And I would run them through a series of automated emails, okay? And between these two email lists, I got 250,000 people on these lists, okay? And these emails are going out. Um, and by the way, this still works. And... Uh, very few Christian ministries have any clue about this. Um, but, for example, Campus Crusade for Christ gets 300,000 people a year filling out a form saying, I just received Christ. 
and it cost them five bucks a piece. Now, how many of you, if you had a magic gumball machine and you could put five bucks in and out comes a Christian on the other side, would you put five bucks in the gumball machine? Well, it's called everystudent.com, and if you, if you believe that, then, then start supporting everystudent.com through CRU because that is exactly what they do. Online guerrilla ministry. And I'm doing this. And by the way, the lady that runs that, I taught her most everything she knows. All right? I'm really serious about Christians advancing their cause on the Internet. And Christians are wise in relationship to unrighteous mammon and foolish with respect to the things of God. And I really want to change that. So, I got all these emails. Well, when people reply to the emails, I get the emails. Now, I don't do this anymore, but for several years, I would sit there, and once or twice a week, I would sit down, I would like, okay, get jacked up on caffeine, stay up half the night, and answer all these questions. All right? Now, part of what I was trying to do was internet evangelism. But the other part of what I was trying to do was I had a question, and my, and my question was, can Christianity really hold up to all these questions or not? I'm going to find out. I am going to find out. If I got 30, 50, 75, 100, 200, 250,000 people on this email list, there's a lot of yo-yos and cranks and morons, but there's some smart ones. There's some needles in the haystack, and I'm going to find them. <coughs> and I am not going to run away from any legitimate question that comes my way. So, let the sparks fly. So they did. Well, that shifted my views on a lot of things. Because I decided, I'm taking this puzzle, I'm throwing it up in the air, and I'm going to see where the pieces land. Is science and faith compatible? What about my interpretations of Scripture? Can I defend stuff? Can I defend this? Or if it's mano y mano, is the guy going to back me into a corner? Like, there was one guy, he was a columnist on Infidels. And it started out with this snarky, you know, you know how they are. Eric, yeah. what Infidels is. Infidels, sorry. <laughs> They've kind of faded a little bit, but for quite a while, they were the number one atheist website in the world. <laughs> like before Richard Dawkins really came on strong and stuff, they, they were it. I mean, they were Grand Central Station. And this columnist on Infidel, like he's kind of snarky. All right, dude, let's go. We had this Microsoft Word document going back and forth. It got up to 100 pages. You know, okay, my reply is in dark green this time. You know, back and forth, back and forth. I backed him into a corner until he said, "Uncle." You know, he's treating me like an idiot at first. We're, this is one-on-one. -on -one. This is not in some forum. This is not in front of a bunch of people. This is one-on-one. -on -one. And at the end, he goes, you're very kind. You're very polite. You're very smart. What you believe is reasonable. And I, just because I can't explain anything doesn't mean I have to. Like, I just, like, I'm done arguing with you. All right, well, you know. So as far as you're going to get with a guy that only wants to go that far. And he stopped 
being a column that's not infidels. Uh, I think he wrote one more article and that was it. So I did a lot of this stuff. And so part of what, part of it was, all right, so what about evolution? And for several years, I just decided to be neutral about it. And I'm going wa to watch the ping pong ball go back and forth. Well, so here's, here's what I got to. How many of you guys used DOS back in the day? All right? So let me ask you a question. If DOS was created in 1981 by Paul Allen and Microsoft, and no engineer ever touched it since, no, no payroll in Redmond, Washington, okay? Get rid of all these guys. If DOS evolved into Windows 10 without guys typing on keyboards, if it evolved a web browser, and it evolved Microsoft Office, and it evolved Excel, and it evolved Word, and it evolved antivirus, would you be impressed with the original program? Yes. So why are Christians against evolution? Why are you offended? And why are you fleeing from something you should be studying? So I'm sitting there, and I'm having all these conversations. Here's what I'm finding. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence for evolution. What was lacking, now, anecdotal. Now, I know the difference between anecdotal evidence and direct evidence. And anecdotal evidence is not direct evidence. And I know that. I'm an engineer. Correlation is not causation. Inference is not facts. But I found a lot. For example, whale feet. Why do whales have this little set of bones just suspended in their body that have all the characteristics of legs and feet, but they're just shrunk down and sitting there? Why does a blind mole rat have a perfectly function eye that's covered up with skin? <clears throat> Why do humans have pseudogenes and transposable elements, like 300,000 of them, that are shared with primates? There's lots of anecdotal evidence. Well, then I discovered this whole other genre of literature. And it's really starting to come out now. But 10 years ago is when I discovered it, and nobody was talking about it. And it was the world of Barbara McClintock, James Shapiro, Lynn Margulis, and a whole bunch of people that have developed a postmodern evolutionary synthesis and they tend to go under the umbrella of third way. There's, there's a website called thethirdwayofevolution.com, which is excellent. And it's about 60 plus scientists who say, we do not buy the traditional Darwinian story of random mutation, natural selection. That does not explain what we've got. And um, uh, by the way, the, like, I'll show you a couple books from that genre that you might be interested in. Uh, James Shapiro, Evolution, A View from the 21st Century. This is not for the faint of heart. This is a PhD-level book 
but I think this is the best evolution book ever written, and it is excellent. It is rigorous, okay? Really good. He's a professor at the University of Chicago. He was mentored by Barbara McClintock, who won the Nobel Prize. Um, this book here by Susan Mazur is called The Paradigm Shifters, and it is a series of interviews with, um, I think, 15 or 20 of these third-way scientists that I described. Now, what I discovered was that there are real-time evolution experiments where, for example, a protozoan under stress splices its own DNA into 100,000 pieces, rearranges them, and adapts itself to a threatening environment successfully. That a chloroplast is actually a blue-green algae that is symbiotically merged with a eukaryotic cell, and every green thing you've ever seen looking out your window is green because a chloroplast is actually a blue-green algae living inside a cell, and that is the world's most successful merger acquisition in history. It's just like going to a Marriott and finding a Starbucks in the lobby. Okay, now, a Starbucks in a Marriott does not happen by accident. There's a scientist named Quan Zhang, from the University of Tennessee. And I can't believe how obscure this is. This, is. this guy should have a Nobel Prize and he should have his picture on like every science magazine. He said, let me see if I can create a symbiotic cellular merger like mitochondria in human cells or like chloroplasts in plant cells. And he put amoeba and bacteria together and they fought like cats and dogs for 18 months. Most of them died, but when he was done, he had a merger between amoeba and bacteria, where if you took, they had both rearranged, edited their DNA, they had become interdependent with each other, and if you separated them, they both died. They had forced the Starbucks and the Marriott to come together and then if you took him back apart, like things broke and didn't work. And he did this in real time. Like I said, he should have his picture on like every science magazine in the world. I had to like dig through like mountains of science journals to find this. Like it says, has anybody done an endosymbiogenesis experiment in real time? Nobody knew. I found a guy. I wrote about it. I wrote about it in this book. Evolution 2.0. He endorsed my book. He's the editor of International Review of Cell and Molecular Biology. And he's a Christian. So what I found was evolution is experimental and empirical. And it happens in real time. And it does not happen by accident. You put salmon in a fish hatchery. And two generations later, more than 700 genes have changed significantly. That's not classical Darwinian evolution. That is post-Darwinian evolution. That is the creature changing its genetics in response to its environment fast. Totally different. Natural selection is just the sorting mechanism. All the interesting stuff is happening on an engineering level inside the cell. Why is nobody teaching this? RTB should be teaching this. RTB should be talking about this. Today, I'm not going to talk about the science. I'm going to talk about the theology. 
Because the theology is what people get hung up on. So, if you'll indulge me, I want, I want to give you a biblical case, a biblical model that is evolutionary friendly, that solves some problems that I've seen a lot of other pro-evolution groups, I think they're creating more problems than they're solving. Now, here's another thing. Through my work, I became acutely aware of a Christian blind spot. So a lot of Christians look at scientists and they go, why won't they acknowledge a creator? How come when we say something about a creator in a science journal that we publish on one of these sites that they take it down and you know burn our villages and stuff? Well, here's the problem. A scientist cannot say, I can't figure this out, God did it, so let's write that in a science journal and take a three martini lunch. Can't do that. You have to figure it out. Okay, now, an evolutionary paradigm is very useful. Why? Because if evolution isn't true, then lions only appear to be related to cats, but, and, and, and the idea of a cat family is only a categorical convenience. It's not a true reality. Okay, but if lions are actually related to cats, and there's a way to get there from here, then you have a much simpler, you have an elegant explanation for how you get lions and cats. Okay, in the RTB model, does God grab a big chunk of rock, stick it in the middle of space, give it a push, and you got Earth orbiting the sun? Hugh Ross would run screaming from the room if you tried to, to say that. No, he would say it's much more elegant. <clears throat> if there's a big bang, if there's a singularity event, if it's fine-tuned to 200 decimal places, and I get an Earth, and I get a Moon, and I get all that from the initial conditions. So if that's true in astronomy, why wouldn't you also want that to be true in biology? And why wouldn't you also want... Bill Gates and Paul Allen, so to speak, to be able to make a piece of software that evolves itself. Because that's what cells do. Cells evolve by themselves in response to the environment. Wouldn't we want that in software? Wouldn't you want a software program that goes, hey, somebody plugged in an Ethernet cable. Let me see if I can get data off of that thing. Maybe we could have an internet. Wouldn't that be cool? And wouldn't it be cool if you could do it without like 40,000 people on your payroll? There's a technological advantage to this. But you have to figure out how evolution works right now. Right now, we've only got like a few hundred scientists that are really trying to figure out how evolution works. And you got most of them like pretending to know and they don't know. You know, and like at the front of the list is Jerry Coyne, P.Z. Myers, and Richard Dawkins, who are all pretending like they're posers, they're fakes. Their theory doesn't work. Listen to my debate with P.Z. Myers. I'm unbelievable. And you decide. All right, so 
Theology problems with evolution. All right, so let's let's first let, let's talk about why young Earth creationists don't like any of this. Why they don't even like it in old Earth. Here's why. It actually comes to Romans five, and what I've done with Romans five is young Earth creationists and probably a lot of other creationists possibly. They read Romans 5 and they assume it's talking about physical death. So I have taken the liberty of every time I see any reference to this in Romans 5, I have inserted physical death. And I'm going to ask you if this makes sense. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and physical death through sin, and in in this way physical death came to all people because all sinned, to be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, physical death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. Um, the body that... Uh, well, let's see. I actually... I, I, I forgot a little I got I forgot a little part of this or maybe the slide didn't transfer over okay so pardon me I gotta pull this up and I want to read you the verses that follow so indulge me for a second while I pull this up all right here we go But um, but the gracious gift is not like the transgression. For if the many died physically through the transgression of the one man, how much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of God of one man, Jesus Christ, multiply to the many? Um, For if by the transgression of the one man physical death reigned through the one, how much more will those receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in physical life through the one Jesus Christ? If the death in Romans 1 is physical, then the life in Romans 1 is physical. So we're all immortal, right? No. This passage makes no sense if you assume that it's physical. This is spiritual death all the way through. Which is separation from God. God's not in the garden walking in the cool of the day anymore. That's what it is. Okay? Really important. Young Earth creationists think that every animal that dies, dies because Eve ate the apple. Not true. Now, maybe you don't buy that. Let's keep going here. The body that, 1 Corinthians 15, the body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown in natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. The fall is about your spiritual body. It's about your spiritual self. 
Now this is a really important distinction. There's no evidence for an immortal world before any time. It's not there. Where's the immortal? Oh, well, it only lasted six days. Okay, well, tell me how that works. Like, okay, explain it. So, like, an elephant never stepped on a mouse, and, like, all the animals were vegetarians, and, I mean, it gets ridiculous. And you guys probably know that, all right? So first we got to get back to Barry? what? Yeah. Please excuse uh, me. I, I, hmm? Is it uh, your one? This is wonderful, but there's questions as you go along. Write them down. I have to take them at the end. Please, please, because this is important. What you're saying. Yeah. I mean, you're throwing out a challenge that uh, says it, it's there wasn't immortality before the fall. There was, but okay. And there's proof for it. Okay. okay. That's okay. So we'll take questions at the end, and we'll, we'll talk about that. Young Earth creationists think that Earth was a paradise. Well, first of all, there was a garden that was a paradise, and it doesn't look like it was very small, and it doesn't even say it was a paradise. It was a very special place that had a thing called a tree of life, which they never really bothered with. And then after the fall, like they can't eat from the tree of life because then they would be immortal. So there was no immortality either. That's my argument. Now we'll, we'll, we'll get to that later if you, if you want to disagree, but, but, but that's what I think. Now, so when we get, to, what does modern science tell us about humans? Well, there's Neanderthals, there's hominids, and there's all, all these you know, pre-human creatures and fossils and everything, and there's fossils of humans going back a long, long time before 6,000 years, so what's the deal with that? Well, there's this really good article um, on BioLogos called Adam, Eve, and the Human Population Genetics Defining the Issues. Well, here's kind of the bottom line of that. Is there evidence that the human race came from a single couple? Not really. It's, if you want to make a case for that, it's not strong. Now, there is a case for a single male ancestor that we all have in common somewhere back there. There is also a case for a single female ancestor that we all have somewhere back there. It, it appears very unlikely that they knew each other. Um, Dennis Venema puts it like this, tallying up the number of ancestors using this method consistently returns a total minimum population size of about 10,000 individuals. Approximately 8,000 ancestors are needed to explain SNP diversity in sub-Saharan Africa and about 2,000 ancestors for everyone else. So we're talking a minimum human population of a few thousand people based on everything that we can currently figure out from genetic research, which we have a lot of, okay? Now, this really gets stuck um, in, it's kind of a bone that gets stuck in Christians' throats because they're like, well, what about Adam and Eve and all that? And I think I have a solution for you. Now, it does create theology problems with like original sin and all this kind of stuff. Okay, so 
there's a whole camp out there, and here's how they deal with it. They deal with it more or less the way John Walton deals with it. And what Walton says is, Adam and Eve story is not a literal story. They're archetypes. And Adam is a representative. By the way, met John Walton. Think he's a nice guy. like him. Um, I think he's doing more good than harm. But I think there are problems with this view. So it reads the Genesis 1 story as a figurative, allegorical kind of a thing. Well, there are some problems with that. Here's what they are. <coughs> Luke. Three, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalal, the son of Kenan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, who never actually existed, the representative archetypal son of God. Doesn't quite work. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, even though he didn't exist. The last Adam, who did exist, a life-giving spirit. And... Conservative Christians know this is a problem, okay? And most people are like, well, I either embrace the theology or I embrace the science, and well, and they're on a dilemma. For Adam, who never existed, was formed first, then Eve, who also never existed. All right. I say, just because Genesis is richly poetic and filled with literary symmetries and rhetorical devices... Does it make it 100% allegory? I think Genesis 1 and 2 are what Karl Barth called saga. It's not completely like blow-by-blow historical narrative, but it's not completely poetry either. It's, it's this interesting mix of both. And it's a beautiful... I mean, it is a rich, rich story. And I think you lose things if you allegorize it. So I have a solution to offer here. I ran into a guy at the American Scientific Affiliation Conference last summer, almost sort of like by accident, except I don't really believe in, you know, accidents. But his name is Richard Fisher, and we were eating barbecue, and I started talking to this guy, and I found it. He wrote this book here. Historical Genesis from Adam to Abraham. Now, I've read Fuzz's book, Who is Adam? I think this guy figured out who Adam is. You should read this book. And I'm not going to try to do justice to his book. He's a docent at the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. He knows a ton of stuff about Mesopotamia and the Middle East, all kinds of Middle Eastern archaeology and history and literature. And he says, Adam was a real guy, and the Mesopotamian literature refers to him too. And Adam wasn't the first human, he was the first prophet. There were all kinds of other humans. But Adam was the first one that God revealed himself to. And he lived about 6,000 years ago. And he makes a great case for this. does a splendid job. Now, so I'm going to argue there was lots of other people running around. And Adam and Eve were just two of them. And God had a special thing for them, and so he put them in a special place. And he breathed something special into them. Now, why would I think that there were other people around? Genesis 4, Cain kills Abel. 
And then they have this confrontation. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Okay, so he's the firstborn son. The secondborn son just got killed. So there's only three people in the world. Who's whoever? Who? But the Lord said to him, not so, anyone who kills Cain will suffer from vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went up from the Lord's... And I think my PowerPoint's translated wrong, so some of the text is missing. It says that he... I think, hopefully I can actually get this to work. Uh, where is that mouse? I'm lost. Um... Somebody please pull this up on your phone. But basically, he gets married to who? And he goes to the land of Nod and he builds a city. For who? A city? He builds a city? Yeah. Uh, let's see. Put the play button. Uh, there we go. Play button. According to the Talmud and some Midrashim as well, there were 974 generations before Adam. This is a very common thought in rabbinic literature, by the way. And it comes from some verse in Psalm about, you know, it goes back a thousand generations, and they go, well, now I think it's a little bit excessively literal, and I don't necessarily buy this. But here's what I'm saying. The Jews don't have any problem with the idea that there was people before Adam. Okay? Here's, a, here's another interesting guy. 1656, which is 200 years before Darwin, Isaac La Perere from Men Before Adam. It must be held that sin was in the world before Adam and until Adam, but that sin was not imputed before Adam. Therefore, other men were to be allowed before Adam who had indeed sinned, but without imputation, because before the law, sins were not imputed. Now, let's look at Romans 5. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. Now I have a question for you. What law is he talking about? Romans 5, 13, and 14. What law is Paul talking about? Mosaic law. No. Yes. Question. If... Sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Why was there a flood before the Mosaic law was given? Because they rebelled against God. But there's no sin if there's no law. But they rebelled against God. But against what about God? The way they were acting. Giving in marriage and continuing. How do we know what kind of marriage it was? We weren't there at that time. It could be the same kind of marriage that we're giving into today. Yes? I argue that law is Adam. It's God's revelation to Adam. 
This is this is talking about. No, that was a command that he gave to Adam. I'm not disagreeing with you, Gary. But when you take a, a broad smattering across a lot of people who came 2,000 years before us and listened to our Lord as he told them, we have to understand the command was given to Adam and Eve. Right. Actually, it was given to Adam. Okay, so why, why and, did God... And Adam had to give it to Eve. So, so why did God hold people responsible and punish them for their sin before Moses? Because they... When Adam and Eve fell, they rebelled against God. Yeah. And they had immediately, they fell out of grace. Right. So the only thing that they could operate on was their human will. But that says sin is not charged against anyone account, anyone's account where there's no law. Well, the other thing too is, like you said, I might have put some stuff up there where it was deleted. One thing that I follow, Gary. Perry. Perry, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And this is a good debate because, just so you know where I'm coming from, I honestly don't care. Whatever God's will is, that's what I want. I don't want to do my will. I don't want to do anybody else's will. I just want to do the will of God. Uh, they felt they were living in what is called divine will, where everything was perfect for them. They felt out of that divine will and could only operate within their human will. The human will was corrupt. Nature was in harmony with man when he was created. So nature also turned against man. And that was the corruption of the original sin. So how could there be sin uh, before the law? They sinned. They disobeyed God. They well, knew what God wanted, and they yet they disobeyed. So I, I think a much more parsimonious explanation is that the law is God's revelation to man with starting with Adam and Eve that those the people that were killing each other knew they shouldn't be killing each other and this this is talking about the original revelation with Adam so it says even so so what we have is we have evil spreading through the world and causing spiritual death even to people that didn't break a command okay the law was God's original instructions to Adam and Eve. Um, and so this is why the guy in 1656 says, it seemed less prejudicial to affirm that sins were not imputed before Moses and until Moses than to affirm that there were any men before Abraham. Adam. Adam. Ver, ver, before Adam, sorry. Okay, so, so now what we have is, yeah, there was... There was there was all kinds sin was in the world before the law was given which is to Adam but it wasn't charged to anybody because they were not expected to know any better alright so I argue original sin is way overrated Christians make way too big of a deal out of it they make a much bigger deal out of it than scripture does Jews are puzzled by this the Old Testament does not make a big deal out of original sin. Adam is barely mentioned after the Pentateuch. Okay? <clears throat> the Jews are like, what is what what are you guys so obsessed with it? Well, we have Augustine and the Calvinists 
who told us that sin basically comes genetically. Bible never says that. Original sin... So, sin is transmitted not by genetics, but by the law. And that is what the Bible teaches. The Bible never says sin is genetic. Original sin problem is a law problem. There's no difference. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. So now what we have is we have a question of, okay, so what is it that Adam had that everybody else didn't have? Well, Genesis 2-7, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. That's not oxygen. That's spirit. So the question is, what did Adam get that others didn't already have, and how did they become guilty of sin after Adam sinned? Well, let's read this again. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, in this way death came to all people because all sinned. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. There's a symmetry there. Adam is to man as Jesus is to Adam. Both bring something new to the human race. Okay, so here's the symmetry. Just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so this trespass might... And I'm sorry, that got cut off. Maybe somebody can pull that up. Um... The idea that sin comes from the Father is not in the Bible. I say sin comes through knowledge. Death spreads to all men like we, we get presented with moral choices and we inevitably take wrong roads and that's how sin and death spread. And it's spiritual death, not physical death. And Jesus brings spiritual life, not physical life. So we've actually solved the problem. There's not a conflict between the Bible and evolution. You can have evolution as your chess queen, and you can go, okay, so if evolution is random and accidental then how did this amoeba and bacteria get together and make this merger? Why does a protozoan split its DNA into 100,000 pieces and rearrange it in real time if this is all supposedly happening by accident? Right? There's no conflict between common descent and the gospel. And Christians are now free to appreciate the awesome power of nature to self-develop. You don't have to fight evolution. You can be the first person to explain to something how evolution actually works. 
which is exactly what my book is. This, this is the first book written in plain English, as opposed to PhD language, that explains how evolution actually works. It took me six years to write it. And we can, ex so the, like the RTB model is really elegant. You start with one big bang, and you get a whole universe. God doesn't have to like step in and fix orbits of planets and stuff. Okay? We can extend that same thinking to biology, and we can go, wow. And by whatever means, but through some things that we don't even understand yet, it looks like the universe is also capable, living things are capable of going from one cell to an entire ecosystem, and nature can take care of itself. It's really amazing. And if we can understand how this works, we are going to get huge advances in technology. This is why I have a technology prize connected with this book. So 11 years ago, I came to an RTB meeting, and I gave this talk, which has become known as, if you can read this, I can prove God exists. Okay? It's a little obnoxious, but I, I kind of like it. Um, it's inference, not proof. But the fundamental argument is DNA is a code. All of the other codes we know the origin of are designed. Therefore... We have 100% inference to design and biology and 0% inference to any other explanation. All right, so you know all those emails and the blog posts and all the debating and everything. I really like engage with lots of people on this. And I realized, you know what? To force people to a conclusion actually shortcuts science. We don't know where life came from. We don't know how you get a code without designing one. But how do you know there's not a solution to this? What if there is a solution? Shouldn't we honor the person who wants to solve it? And so I put together a technology prize. Right now it's $3 million, and here's how it works. If you can produce a code that's not designed, under any circumstances, I'll write you a check for $100,000. Yay, press releases, everything like that. If what you discover is defensively patentable, then I have a private equity investment group who is willing to pay for the patent costs, secure a patent, and when the patent's granted, we'll pay you $2.9 more dollars. And then you really do press releases, and we will own a patent on getting from matter to code. That would be AI. That would be artificial intelligence. It would be hugely valuable. And if that's possible, why wouldn't you want to discover it? So let's leave it as an open question. We don't know any other way to get a code than to design one. Therefore, you can't dismiss the idea in biology. You can't of design. The only way you can dismiss design is if somebody can solve this. So let's solve it. So <laughs> belly up to the bar. Don't let your mouth write a check that your body can't cash. And you know what we're going to do? You know, I, I listen to a radio show with Richard Dawkins on NPR once. And somebody asked Dawkins about the origin of life, and he goes, it was a happy chemical accident. I'm like, what? You're an Oxford scientist and you just said that? Well, we're going to take that off the table. That is not science. That is a pitiful excuse of masking ignorance and ignoring important questions and making stuff up. Nobody should get away with that. So, 
I want to put a stop to this. And if people have a solution, then let's solve it. And if you don't, don't make up stories. So that's my presentation. Um, what I'd like to do is um, maybe we should take a break and then I can do questions. Bob, you tell us how you want to proceed because I know there's lots of questions take and questions stuff. Now. Okay, so let's take let's take 15 yeah, minutes of questions. Can, uh, and then we can end it and then uh, if people want to leave, they can leave and then I can take questions. That sounds great. Okay, I'll just start start with David. Very basic issue. In your thinking, how do you distinguish between God's creation and God's sustaining the universe and all that is within it? Well, in, in the classical tradition of science, sustaining is the operation of fixed discoverable laws. Creating is singularity events. And so I would, I, would, I would put things in two categories. There are singularities and there are laws that cause things to emerge. Now, the general bias of science is you want to move as many things from perceived as singularities to laws as you possibly can. Because singularities are not useful and fixed discoverable laws are. So, how few singularities can we get this down to? Now, in my view, which I, you know, I'm flexible on this, I see a few singularities in history. As far as I can tell, Big Bang was a singularity. As far as I can tell, Origin of Life was a singularity. I think that God revealing himself to man was a singularity. I think the incarnation of Christ was a singularity. Now I wonder, could I actually get origin of life? Could we actually get that from the Big Bang and have one singularity instead of two? That would be very good. My prize seeks to do that. That is what the prize is trying to look for. Yeah? So you're, you're contending. Let me get this straight. People before Adam do not receive the breath of life or the nefesh hayah in Hebrew, living soul. Um, maybe not. And by the way, I'm kind of fuzzy on this. And therefore, they're not culpable for anything. They're not culpable because there's, there's no law. So they just they just turn into uh, fossil fuels. Well, I don't I, I don't I don't know. Okay, I, I'm inclined to think. I'll say this. In Genesis 1, it says, let us make man in our image, male and female, he created them. Okay? I'm inclined to think that that is a separate event from what happened to Adam. But I don't know. This is a... I am really willing to twist the Rubik's Cube on so that. So the fish the living souls, still fuzzy in your mind. It is. Okay. It is. Yes? Where does natural law fit in? Uh, yes, we have a question from AJ. Okay, let me let me take his question first, and then AJ, I love to hear from AJ. Okay. Where does natural law? You mean natural moral law? Right. Do good and avoid evil. Mm, what well, time does that come in to your scenario? Well, I think it shows up before Adam. That's, that's my point. 
Let's let's take AJ's question. I have to take you off my yeah, head. By the way, we have somebody that's listening in from a reason as to the way a new scholar that's listening. Questions. Uh, and and uh, can you hear me? Yeah, just make sure. Okay, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So, so I, I think that there are still some some theological problems. Uh, I, I'd like to push back just a little bit on your on your singularities because I think I think the scripture clearly uh, parallels what we know and understand scientifically and observationally about reality that human beings are not just different by degree mm -hmm. but we're different by kind and I think that difference in kind is uh, exactly and, and perfectly linked to the image of God that is within humanity and so I think that a singularity that you need to hold on to even though it might be difficult to uh, 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 harmonize with current evolutionary theory that would say that humanity is just different in kind, uh, different in degree, and not in kind. Is is that that we are created in the image of God? And and so I'll, I'll let you respond to that. But also, I think that this the idea of moral law uh, is is something that has existed as long as humanity has existed. Because the moral law, actually, even before that, because the moral law is founded in the very character and nature of God. And so the moral law was the law that Cain and Abel and Adam and Eve and all of humanity uh, have been held to uh, since the beginning of, of human time. And the moral law is unchanging. So the Sinaitic law, the law given to Moses, was a covenantal law to, to distinguish a people that God was uh, forming covenant with. The, the Sinaitic law was both fulfilled and and somewhat changed in Christ, right? Christ fulfilled the law, and yet he didn't he didn't abolish the moral law. We're still under the law of the Spirit, the law of Christ, the unchanging moral law that's rooted in the nature and the character of God. So so there are a few things that I would say I want to push back a little bit on. I, I think that some of the things that you tried to unpack theologically actually create more problems, you know, the fact that you're still kind of fuzzy about the creation event in Genesis, and uh, you appeal to a law given to Adam that isn't actually uh, detailed in Scripture, so I'll, I'll stop talking for right now, thanks. Right, so, hey, Terry, yeah. a lot of us could not hear that, could you in some ways right. summarize it so, as we... So, AJ, tell me if I am summarizing you well. I think what you're saying is A the mere existence of moral law itself is a is a question that I don't get to ignore. Even if it comes before Adam because moral law is a reflection of God's character. Is that a fair statement? It's not just a reflection of his character, but it's grounded in the very nature and character of God. So it is part of creation. The moral law is part of creation. Um, okay, uh, it's part of creation. Emanating from the nature and character of God. Okay, well, so I think that Adam, that, that so clearly humans have in, entire dimensions of morality and awareness and creativity and the animals simply do not have. And I think that is a reflection of 
a spiritual thing that we have been gifted with that is not reducible to our bodies. I see a singularity there. I think that that when God says, let us create man in our image, when God breathes the breath of life into Adam, I don't know if that's two singularities or one, but I think that's singularity. What I'm fuzzy about is that two events, is that one, what is the nature of that? I'm not sure, but we know that humans are vastly different. You know, we don't have any chimpanzees competing with moral, Warren Buffett, right? Um, and, and, okay, um, and, and, and also, I, I, I think that, that when you talk about moral law, there is, an, there is a revelation of moral law through human conscience that you simply do not see in the animal world. Like if, if if we rewind, uh, you know, enough, uh, three million years ago, I don't think we see moral law operating in the practical, actual world. But now we do. Yes. Can you see me nodding my head? Sorry. Yes. Uh, no. Actually, okay. You'll have to flip your phone. That's okay. No, that's all right. That's all right. I'm, I'm nodding my head. I I think that yeah, the moral law is is applicable to humanity and not to other creatures. Certainly. And, and I, what what I want to ask everybody for is don't expect me to have this all figured out today. But what I do ask you for is I think this. I think we should let science tell us about human history. And we shouldn't ignore, if, if it looks like t- common descent is a fact, we shouldn't ignore it. And I think what I'm describing here fits the facts better than any of the models I've ever seen and I've been looking for a long time. Let, let me take some other questions and then um, maybe, we, AJ, we can come back to you. Kurt. Uh, so as uh, someone who studies original sin, that's what my PhD topic's on, I really, I really appreciate actually what you had to say and agree with most of what you said here. Huh. I think the Augustinian tradition has blown uh, out of proportion what the Bible has to say on original sin. Yes. And some of it is due to the mistranslation that Augustine had himself that wasn't yeah. discovered until Erasmus, um, that mistranslation. But I, what can, I, can I have a comment? I think Augustine seriously suffered from major self-condemnation too. Okay, and I think he smeared it all over all of us. He had, yeah, he had problems mistake, with addictions. He had, you his know. mistake was in thinking his spiritual experience was normative. <laughs> right. Uh, so I mean, right. You can, when you read Confessions, yeah, that's not everyone's experience. But one question I did have for you was something you, you said pertaining to the resurrection. Mm. Um, I think that's a singularity. I'm, I'm really comfortable with that. <laughs> so, well, the, uh, the, the coming resurrection. So you said when you were talking about Romans 5 that um, life in Christ wasn't a physical thing. Right. Whereas I think of it both as a spiritual and a physical thing that we will. I just wanted you to clarify maybe because your remark was very brief and, you know. Well, okay, so I, I agree that if you, really, if you study heaven, if you study all of this stuff, um, the picture that I get of the eternal future state is a lot more like earth than unlike earth. I I think that's very clear if you really dig into it. Um, But there is something intrinsically different about that world than this one. And, 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 And the fact that we're not immortal now speaks to that. 
Does that help? Oh yeah, we're, we're old wineskin now, and we will be new wineskin. Right. To use that analogy. Right. Um, you, 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 and then you. Yes. First of all, I want to thank you for espousing these ideas. I, I, I feel like I've been trying to espouse at least a portion of what you've been saying, particularly around you know harmony with evolution and God, you know, kind of imparting spirit to a certain you know species. So I, I that totally resonates with me. But I haven't studied it nearly as long as any of you in this room, I'm sure. But anyway, I appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, and I'm going to read your book. Um, so my question, though, is about is about your your. Uh, I should also say I spent about 20 years uh, at, at really the highest echelons of of science and walk the halls of Harvard, etc. So I've been around these questions for a long time, and now I'm in software. Huh? So the question is about design, and I was really intrigued by your questions about you know could DOS evolve into Windows 10, and, and what exactly are you trying to say about origins and you know about how mm. um, you know original life did in fact right. come about and is evolving. So I'm just okay. say a little bit more about All right. So what I'm trying to say there is so all of this is based on what we know, based on what we know, based on what we know. And by the way, information technology is a branch of science, communication theory is a branch of science, electrical engineering is a branch of science. All engineers deserve a seat at the table to talk about this stuff because evolution is a theory of engineering and you cannot avoid it. That is a fact, right? And if, if, if naturalistic, materialistic, non-purposeful Darwinian evolution is true, why does it never work in software? Somebody, somebody show me one software program that was written by a genetic algorithm without a bunch of goals inserted at the very beginning, right? Absolutely. So, so, so what we know about software says at the minimum that the first cell had to be preloaded with some fantastic adaptive capability. Like, um, it, it, that is an inevitable conclusion that in, any engineer would come to. But in the interest of getting rid of singularities, I would also like to entertain the possibility that maybe the Big Bang was so fine-tuned, or maybe there's additional laws of physics that we do not know, properties of self-organization that we do not know, that we can discover that would explain where the first cell come from, and if somebody discovers that, that will be one of the 10 most important scientific discoveries of, of the 21st century and possibly all time. And I want to be, uh, I want to organize the group that discovers that. It, it would be like, it's 1890s, people go, you know, laws of physics, there's, I think there's some problems here, there's some fraying edges, there are experiments that don't make any sense. I think we need uh, some kind of new physics. I don't know what it looks like, but here's what it would do. And then 15 years later, Einstein comes along and goes, bing, 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 you know, theory of relativity, quantum mechanics, it's problem solved. So we write him a check for $100,000, and then 20 years later, somebody invents nuclear power, and we buy the patent for that for $2.9 million. That's what we're trying to do here. And we're trying to harness theology to pinpoint scientific questions that aren't yet answered, and nobody gets to say happy chemical accident anymore. That is off the table. <laughs> Yes. Okay. There's so many 
so many questions. Yes. <laughs> I threw, I, t I took the box and I threw the puzzle up in the air and the pieces are, <laughs> yeah. right? it's like the house in Wizard of Oz. Um, it really is. And, but I appreciate what you're doing. And I think I appreciate it too, because you're, I believe you're coming at it from a Christian standpoint where you know, totally. there is God. Yep. And I almost see this for lack of a better analogy, it's like the Republicans destroying each other before they can get, get rid of the demonic party. Um, I'm but, not going to touch that. <laughs> but, you know, and, and it's a shame that it should be that way uh, with, with great Christians on both sides. Yeah. But here's my first question. Let's get right down to rock bottom. Mm -hmm. One thing you haven't done, I don't think, how do you define evolution? How do I define evolution? And then it's going to lead to a second thing about Barbara McClintock. Evolution is chaos resolved by intent. Evolution is, is cognitive response by living things to change their physiology in response to the environment. Okay, now, in my book, I show, f I show five different distinct evolutionary mechanisms, and I show empirical examples of all of them, including new species. Okay, and it's in the lab, and you can see it, and you can measure it, and there's no disputing it. Atheists hate to talk about this because it completely contradicts their version of the story. Chris every Christian ought to know about this stuff. And I don't think it's very much of a stretch to say, well, when you take what we can accomplish in the lab in 18 hours or 18 months, it's not a stretch to go in 3 billion years we could get from one cell to humans. Okay. But what, here's my concern. Mm -hmm. Everybody's defining evolution differently. Right. If we take evolution, it's the random. Yeah. I'm directed. We can't, we can't right. ignore things. Now, just pretend and say, right. well, my assumption and my thinking, and this is what it is today. Yeah. True evolution is random, undirected. No, false evolution is random and undirected. No, that's... False evolution. Uh, false evolution. Darwin said, natural selection, yeah. who is undirected, because they don't believe in God. They're what? Well, Darwin wasn't an atheist. I know that. And Darwin didn't know where the variations came from. But he said it was random. No, he didn't. Yes, he... Actually... I'm sorry. Actually... Then it's your interpretation. His evangelists made it into a random thing. He didn't know where the variations came from. He no, thought he it... Knew, okay, can I finish? Yeah, sure. Okay, random, undirected... Yeah. By natural science, things evolved... Right. For survival. Right. Okay. Right. That's a Darwinian doctrine. Then you use Barbara McClintock, who mm -hmm. did win the Nobel Prize in 1984, I think it was, mm -hmm. for her study on the ear of corn. Mm -hmm. That ear of corn showed that something within it, through the entropy, had the ability to what? Correct itself. Yes. Under no circumstance has it ever been shown that then that ear of corn could develop into a soybean. Okay, so you need to look up symbiogenesis and hybridization because both of those, the corn came from a hybridization of a grass 
and and in uh, and, and, and another plant. You, really, you need to look into this. Okay, because now, it's now, amazing. Now, now bear with me. Yeah, and we have to. Is this last? But, but this is the whole thing, and I agree with Bob. The whole thing here is okay. Let's move on. But unless we, there is no in order for in order for evolution to be true, or even evolution 2.0. Yep. There has to be somewhere to show that a new species came from a, an existing species. And yeah. it, we, we have that. No, you, well, okay. Yeah, we do. Uh, oh, yeah, we do. I checked it out, and the, the people that I speak to that are being truthful about it, even at the University of Chicago, are saying, and even with the, with the flippers on the whale, the feet, mm -hmm. it's already been proven that it's used for mating purposes. It was never meant for feet. So, but we take that as saying, oh, but look at this. But that's already been disproven. So, me so many of the things that are out there that you're quoting have already been disproven. What I'm saying is, if you, and I thought about this coming here, because I, I went through your whole website, and I really, truly appreciate it. But the whole thing is, if God did not create individuals, in the very beginning, in chapter 3 of Genesis, the very foundation, and we say it's the inerrant word of God. Nobody else revealed how we came about yeah. and the meaning and the purpose for our life. Yeah. So when Adam and Eve fell, he promised a what? A redeemer. Mm -hmm. Chapter 3, all right there. We don't have to wait for the evolution into Deuteronomy or Job or anything else. Mm -hmm. So we had to wait for 4,000 years, and all through that time there was a prophecy that a Redeemer would come. Right. If my thought was, if you eliminate or question Genesis, you might as well throw out the whole Bible. I, well, that sounds like Ken Ham, and I'm not questioning Genesis. I'm questioning the way that it's interpreted. I'm questioning Augustine. I'm questioning well, Calvin. It, it, well, I'm questioning how, Alvin. How, how do you interpret it, though, other than... He created the animals separately, stopped, and then he created man. And then on the fourth day, he created the sun, moon, and stars, according to those that received revelation from God, instantaneously and simultaneously. So to think that the sun came about from, also, a, from a natural, all these gases coming together and staying together. Uh-huh. Now. I, I, so okay. we, we got to cut this off. But, but here's the final thing. What's even more unimaginable is that God became man. He would like, it would be like us lowering ourselves to worms to save the worms. Why did he become man? For the very reason that Adam and Eve committed a sin. And if we start to question that. I'm not questioning any of that. Well, you, Where did you get that? So, we got to cut this okay, off. Okay. We got to cut this off. You need to study the RTV model. I, I am challenging you to because do that. Because you're, you're saying evolution. It's not evolution. Well, okay. I'm, this is evolution 2.0. All right? This is a whole different deal. All right? Evolution 1.0 is DOS, and we're in Windows 10. We're in Mac. So we're going to take one more question. And the only reason why is it's because it's from my wife, Kathy. <laughs> hey, I love nepotism, man. It's, it's a good thing. I rage. With one person, mm -hmm. um, Perry. Um, there, there are two um, models that we are dealing with. Yeah. Um, let's go back to the theology. Mm -hmm. All right. 
And if you look through the Old Testament, it's the story of God's continual interaction with mankind. Yep. Again and again and again, he interferes. He corrects. He sends prophets. Yes. He um, <clears throat> sends wars. He, you know, he warns. He rewards. Right. Um, that's the model of God's interaction with man. Yes. Why would it be any different with his interaction with nature? Okay, that's a fa- the best question all day. <laughs> best question all day, right there. She asked, okay, so if God speaks to the prophets and he talks to Moses and he sends Jesus and he's, he's, you know, present with us, then why, why would the create, the physical created world be any different? Okay. And, and here's, indulge me. It takes a little bit of time to give you a good answer on this. So first of all, I go to a charismatic church. All right, and man, we like feel the spirit, and like I've had lots of spiritual experiences, and I'm like totally good. Um, you know, God's healed things in my heart. Um, God's like told me to avoid really stupid mistakes, you know, and all of that. And so, I think there's a lot of cessationists whose only miracle is like. Six days of creation or something. And like, no, you could experience him now. Okay. So I'm like totally good with that. But 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 here's here's a so Guillermo Gonzalez writes his book, Privileged Planet. And he realizes that that the earth is optimized for observation. That 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 an Earth optimized for life is also an Earth optimized for observation. Like so, the sun and the moon are the exact same size in the sky, and when there's an eclipse, you can discover things about the sun that you couldn't discover any other way. And he's like, man, you know what? I think the universe is optimized for our discovery. Now, if if the universe was if, if creation was a series of singularity events, oh, God did this, God did this, God bumped the planets back into the orbits and stuff like that, then every time you add one of those, there's less for us to discover, less for us to discover, less for us to discover. The more self-sustaining nature is, the more there is to discover. So God has made nature so that we can use the tools of science In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Science is the study of the heavens and the earth. Okay? And we can, and scientists can go down that rabbit hole and we don't even know how deep it goes. There's always more. There's always another subatomic particle. There's always another principle. There's always another thing. There's always another Higgs boson. And it keeps going and going and going. And it doesn't stop. And it's not going to stop. It's going to keep going and going. And that's how the natural world is. But then we have the spiritual world where God speaks to people. And we get both. But if, if, if creation is a series of miracles that nobody was there to see, that takes away what we can learn. And I think God has put it there for us to learn. So, kind of a nuanced answer, but, but that's, that's my view. We're going to let you 
leave if you want, but if you want to come up and talk to uh, Perry a little bit more and explore a little more of this option. And I'm going to put it, if you want to throw me a question out, I could forward it on to Perry and stuff like that, and maybe we can continue some of these discussions later on uh, um, in any of our next meeting and stuff. Because he brought up a lot of issues that I have a lot of questions about. Yep. That I, you know, love to, to talk and to discuss, and so sometime in the future. But we want to thank you for yeah. coming. So I want to yeah. honor you. I want to honor Bob for risking his RTV career <laughs> on this dangerous meeting. So, <laughs> so let me um, close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you. We, we, you know, we know you are the great creator. We know that you, you that you're the one that's responsible for us being here today, and that you designed us with a purpose. You designed us to have, have an interaction with you. And we're just so grateful that you did that. Thanks for our time together. And we ask that as we go about that we go just um, really um, with an attitude of loving towards other people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.